now, now, <laughs> I can click the go live button. This is so convoluted. I'm here complaining about the ability to stream high definition video around the world for free because I've got to join up multiple things at once. <laughs> First of all, problems. G'day Stephen, g'day Stuart, thank you very much for joining today. It's, it's interesting, as I schedule these things, and I really think scheduling works a lot better, but as I schedule these things, it seems that people are much better able to actually uh, sort of plan and join in, so I am going to try and do that more. also forces me to actually uh, get my ass into gear a little bit more and not rush the last moment where I haven't even had a chance to get a beer. <laughs> And pour a beer. I had a chance to get the beer, just not pour the beer. For those of you watching at home who are going to inevitably ask, it is Ben Spoke Sprocket. Uh, Canberra beer, of all places. For those of you not from Australia, the only thing in Canberra is politicians, fireworks and porn. Uh, and it's close to the snow. <laughs> and that's about it. Sorry for the folks who are there who would otherwise defend it. Who else is here? Brendan, g'day Brendan, Patrick. Hello, we hear you nice and clear. Thank you for actually raising that without me even having to ask. Jeez, it's not my first time. Evening for Joshua, morning for Graham. Uh, Nikki van der, van der Vrunhoven is in the Netherlands. Uh, just talking the other day about going back to the Netherlands. I may actually come back to the Netherlands in December. I'm a little bit, a little bit tempted to have some time back there. Let me kick off by doing the essential things. <laughs> I have to make sure I remember which, of course, is the sponsor. This week, again, is Veronis. I don't have the Veronis hoodie on because it has actually been really, really warm today. Uh, it's autumn. We've been been out on the tennis court, been in the pool. It's been really, really good. Veronis for Salesforce. Detect suspicious behavior and strengthen your Salesforce security posture. Try it for free. Uh, as I mentioned before, Veronis is most certainly my longest and most prevalent sponsor and I really appreciate their support. Their message is a little bit different this week to what it has been in the past, focusing a bit more on the Salesforce side of things now. Protect Salesforce data from overexposure and cyber threats. And Veronis has always been very good, uh, not just because of being a sponsor, but the times I have spent with them in person around the world have been very good at identifying things that have been exposed in places they shouldn't be, uh, which, of course, is the challenge these days because we have so many different things in so many different places. I remember even when I was back in corporate world, 2014, just about to have my anniversary of having left corporate. No, 2015 I left that. Even back then, it was hard finding everything you have. And of course, there's a lot more cloud now, a lot more things in other places. Brenda's after the caramel popcorn. <laughs> Steve, new feature, Troy sponsor and then beer coffee sponsorship. That'd be good, wouldn't it? If you are a brewer or a coffee uh, roaster and you would like to sponsor my blog, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Nikki says, a typical Dutch last name. Uh, I saw you one evening. I, I saw you on an evening at Cap Gemini, I believe. So uh, I think the Cap Gemini one I did was in Norway. But uh, fun fact, in case you're not, Nikki, I, I did live in the Netherlands for a couple of years uh, as a kid. So I do have an affinity there uh, and I would like to get back there more. I am planning a big Europe trip in December. Very, very early days of planning. Probably be my first time overseas in nearly three years by that time. Now, I do have a lot of stuff to talk about today. Where do I put my notes? They're down here somewhere. I told you I wasn't organized. <sighs> Where do we begin? Where do we begin? Trevelio. 
Trevelio data breach. So Trevelio is an Indonesian real estate services site. Now, if I jump over to Twitter and have I been pwned, uh, I loaded this one up today. Indonesian real estate uh, website breached in November. Email addresses, names. Why don't I put the number in there? I know what the number is. About 472,000 unique email addresses, uh, names, password, hashes, phone numbers, and for some accounts, dates of birth, physical address, and Facebook auth tokens. Um, quite unusual to see Facebook, Facebook auth tokens. We don't see that every day. 81% of the email addresses were already in there. This was, uh, I've linked to a story here from Risk-Based Security. Uh, now, they did a little roundup. Uh, this was in, uh, was in December, where they talked about a number of leaked databases. A massive 911 gigabyte database. Wow, which one's this one? Marshall Investigative Group for sale. I have not seen that one yet. FBI targeted, FBI investigations recently a very public threat during a website bug, uh, hoax emails. We know that. This is all last year. I'm just wondering what is in here that I haven't already put in Have I Been Pwned? There's a story about Robin Hood. Robin Hood is in Have I Been Pwned. Junkin Media. I have not seen Junkin Media. Only 110,000 records. Trevelio, that's one that's in there. Then a whole bunch of ransomware stuff. So a pretty endless stream of data breaches. I, I'm trying to work through the backlog. There's always a backlog. It hasn't helped that the last week has been school holidays, uh, and I've, I've directed my attention to them <laughs> instead of to data breach things. In fact, I've spent the last, most of the last three days at tennis courts as, as Ari has played many matches, and tomorrow will be another day of all day at tennis courts, which I'm actually quite happy with. It's nice sitting there doing that. In a, a vain attempt at getting stuff done, I put my laptop in the car because I thought if there's like hours where he's not playing, I'll just sit there and do some work. Uh, and I didn't. And I make no apologies for that. I'm quite happy not doing the work. Okay. Um, Nikki says, cool fact. Didn't know that. Where did you live? I'm in the south near Eindhoven. I live near uh, near Leiden in a, a town called Ustgeist. Nikki's going to tell me I've said that terribly. Uh, but near Leiden. So I used to go to Leiden a lot. And I, I did go back to Leiden, oh, I want to say, five years ago maybe for a little bit. And I really, really liked it. So I'm... I'm very keen to go back here. I know December's not the best time <laughs> to go there, but we're sort of working with when am I going to be on that side of the world. Russian data breaches. Let me talk about Russian data breaches. Now, this is, this is a really interesting one. Uh, where do I begin with this? Russia's been in the news a bit of late, uh, and, of course, people have been targeting them, and I am entirely sympathetic I was going to say supportive. I'm not entirely supportive, and I'll explain why in a moment, but I'm entirely sympathetic for why people might want to do that. There's a bunch of different breaches that have been hitting the news in terms of them being Russian breaches uh, in retribution for the invasion of Ukraine. Now, at the moment, I'm looking at the Distributed Denial of Secrets webpage. It's it's a mainstream webpage. It's fairly well known. I'm not going to link to it because it's got a whole bunch of torrents that you can then go and download things and... Even though they're Russian and we don't really have any sympathy for Russia at the moment, it's still a whole bunch of PII of all sorts of kinds from all sorts of places. But there's been a lot of data uh, leaked on there. And, you know, looking at the bottom of the list now, Marathon Group, Thosis Group, Mash Oil. Now, a lot of this seems to have been people that have actually managed to exploit these systems and pull a bunch of data out. In fact, I'll come back and explain why I'm not 100% supportive of it. But just bear with me. 
So I've pulled this data down. I've looked at some of it. I looked at Mashall. There's allegedly about 140,000 uh, unique emails, not email addresses, but emails in this breach. In fact, when I had a look at it, there was a very, very large number of .email files in there. The um, distributed denial of secrets description says nearly 140,000 emails from Mashall, which designs, manufactures, and maintains equipment used in the drilling, mining, and fracking industries. Mashall is the official representative of the FID group in the Russian Federation. The FID group unites Belarus and Russian enterprises that design, manufacture, and supply equipment relating to the extraction of hydrocarbons. Anywho, when I went through and I pulled out the number of unique emails within those .emails, I got to something like 120,000 unique email addresses, but a huge amount of it was like a good alias at uh, mashoil.ru, I think it was. Makes sense. Or other temporary-looking email addresses. The actual number of unique email addresses was very low. So as much as I would be... V- I would be happier than with most data breaches, let's say that, to load a very large trove of Russian email addresses into Have I Been Pwned, there is still an entry criteria. Uh, And this just felt like a large amount of noise with very little actual substance, at least as it relates to Have I Been Pwned. Now, I'm sure that if people were to actually go through these emails, they'd find some really, really useful stuff. Um, I, I think in general, and getting back to the point of why I'm not entirely supportive and in fact, I, I don't want to blow it all because I, I think I'm going to use part of this. I'm going to go to Sydney a week after next to do a, a talk for Akamai. Uh, and they said, hey, can you talk about some like Russia and Ukraine data breach related stuff as well? Uh, so without blowing the entire pitch of, of what I want to talk about, my concern, and I have seen others express this as well online, is that there is a lot of, like let's call it call to arms, of people trying to encourage anyone else out there on the internet to go and attack uh, Russian assets and pull data out of them and then make it public or do damage or whatever else. And what I'm a little bit concerned about is that you don't always get it right. (laughs) Very often, you don't always get it right. I'm also not sure of where people stand legally. Let's say it's some... Someone who is is well and truly behind the cause here in Australia, and they go out and they actually do some damage to an asset in Russia. Now, I, clearly, they're not about to get extradited or something like that. I'm just not sure it leaves them. But I, I think more than anything, that the bit that I worry about, I think back to, and I, I think I'm actually going to take a clip out of this and put it in my, in my talk. I think back to the the documentary on Anonymous, and I'm struggling to remember the name now. It was about 10 years ago, and it was after the WikiLeaks situation and where PayPal stopped taking uh, donations to WikiLeaks and Visa and MasterCard and so on. And a whole bunch of people got very upset about that and went, uh, we are going to now take part in a massive distributed denial of service. And there was all this guidance out there about download LOIC. Remember LOIC, the low-orbit ion cannon? I use it in some of my presentations a while ago. It was always good fun when I did it. But basically, you download this little executable on your machine. You give it an IP address, and there's a few little configurations there and a number of simultaneous threads and packets and things. And then it just blasts garbage at a website. And it doesn't matter if one or two or three people or probably one or two or three hundred people do it to PayPal or Visa or MasterCard. But you get thousands of people, and now you actually have an impact. And the bit that I really remember from this video is that they went and arrested. It was it was like some it was a, a teen number. You know, let's say it's fifteen people, fifteen people, 
and many of them were like teenagers and they were i think the ones that ended up making uh, the documentary were not children but they were like 18 19 years old and the thing that i really remember is how little they were actually invested in this and i remember one in particular there was a kid with a like a backpack i got to find this because it's going to be good material and they're interviewing him and he's like look i i just saw this talked about somewhere i downloaded it because i didn't like the idea of paypal not taking donations uh, and I started Loic, and then I went to school. Uh, and then I came back, and sometime later I got arrested. And that's a very different scenario to what some people have said. Because some people say, look, it's like it's the same as if you're you're an 18-year-old in Ukraine and, and you pick up a gun to defend you. No, it's not. <laughs> like some kid sitting in their bedroom on the other side of the world who does this out of a curiosity before going to school and really has no greater concerns in their life is not the same as some kid like literally trying to fight for his freedom in his homeland. Like that's a very, very different story. So it worries me a little bit about how little actual endorsement people need to have in the cause to get out there and and start potentially causing damage in the wrong direction. I will make that a more cohesive story before I do the talk. Let's look at some of the, the chats here. Neil, g'day from Sydney, rain clouds. I was speaking to a mate in Sydney this afternoon. I was like, you still dry? Everything in Australia is wet. Um, Here I see. Just chatter, chatter, chatter. Brendan, do you recall who released it? Something tells me it might have been The Guardian. Uh, This is the, you know what, I'm going to search for it. I'm sure I spoke about this in a recent weekly update. Uh, let's say anonymous documentary. I know it's about ten years old. Oh, there's, I think it's this one. So IMDb here. We are legion. The story of hacktivists. Twenty twelve. An hour thirty four minutes. So check that out. I'm going to have to go and watch this again. What's in here? Is this the one I'm thinking of? There's a trailer. Let's turn the volume down. Then you can all watch the trailer with me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's the one. We are Legion, the story of hacktivists from 2012. Um, Stuart says, oh, yes, my uni friend's brother ended up getting arrested for that DDoS attack. Oh, sheesh. Okay. You know, when I was a kid, (laughs) before DDoS existed, but when I was a kid, after living in the Netherlands, I was living in Singapore for a few years, uh, and... I still remember the guy's name. I'm going to Google this. There were kids my age arrested, uh, and the kid's name was Michael Fay. Michael Fay, Singapore. I'm going somewhere with this. Bear with me. Oh, wow, he's actually on Wikipedia. Michael P. Fay. Damn, dude's old now. He's like, yeah, my age. <laughs> All right. Michael Peter Fay is an American who was sentenced to six strokes of the cane in Singapore in 1994. They don't muck around there. For theft of road signs and vandalizing 18 cars over a 10 day period in September 1993, which caused a temporary strain in relations between Singapore and the United States. In fact, I remember because Bill Clinton was president and he was trying to intervene in Singaporean law around uh, not caning the guy. Now, most of us are from countries where corporal punishment has not been a thing for a long time. So for Singapore to go, yeah, we're just going to like cane this, I was going to say kid, but I think he was. And if this was, so he was born 75, this was in 93. Uh, yeah, I think he just hit 18, which is part of his problem. Anywho, 
That was a really big story. And where I was going with this is that for, for something like that, when I was a kid, to do something that would get you arrested, you, you, you had to go out and physically do something. You, you had to sort of go out and physically do damage and vandalize something or do something else irresponsible. It's very, very different when I think about, okay, Ari's 12. Uh, it's very different for him to go up to his bedroom, sit in his computer and go, I'm going to download Loic and point at an IP address. And he's going to do that in the space of two minutes. It's just digital. It's just on the computer. He has no sense of the social impact or the legal impact of that. So when I see this comment just here, uh, who has said this about one of their friends? Here we go, Stuart. About his friend's brother getting arrested. I really wonder how much your mate's brother actually understood. With like if your mate's brother had gone and vandalized a car and afterwards you sh- you as, let's say, hypothetically, you're the parent, and you had, had to go, mate, like, what were you doing? So, oh, yeah, I know it was the wrong thing. Like, I, I damaged someone else's property. It's very different sitting down at a computer. Anyway, other big story there. Stephen, look, I remember that being used uh, against MasterCard Visa back in 2012. Yep, that's the one we're talking about. Uh, Keenan here has figured out what it is. Yes, it's We Are Legion. Patrick says, with regards to Russia, Ukraine, what do you think about all the open source intelligence getting soldiers, generals in trouble, killed on both sides. Oh, boy. This feels above my pay grade. Uh, I think what would be an interesting question is if you were involved in providing OSINT data that got someone killed, how would you feel? Regardless of like which side of the fence they're on because if you're like me you're not a military person you're you're just an everyday person sitting at home if i provided information that led to someone getting killed someone who might let's say they're a soldier on the other side they're a russian soldier and they've got a wife and kids and family and they get killed because of the data i provide Ah, I, I, I feel very, very uncomfortable about that. And I, I think in my mind I'm doing like this mental arithmetic of I feel very uncomfortable about that. I also feel pretty bloody uncomfortable about Russia invading Ukraine. So I just I, I worry about the civilian contributions that have real impacts on people's lives. That's what I worry about. Uh Srujan, I've always heard Singapore law doesn't screw about, but well, yep, 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 pretty much right. You got to remember, like Singapore, up until, so my dad tells me stories of Singapore. He was in Singapore in the 70s in the Air Force. He was an Air Force pilot, and he tells me stories of what Singapore was like then. And this was in, for anyone that follows this side of politics and everything, the, the very early Lee Kuan Yew days. So Lee Kuan Yew was sort of the father of modern Singapore, and they kind of ruled it with an iron fist and and Singapore is a country that's about 40 kilometers wide and 20 kilometers high it's a very 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 small country it's one of the highest population densities in the world I think after Vatican City their population at the moment I believe is several million let's check population of Singapore population of Singapore uh 5.7 million now I think when I was there it was about 3 million and um Actually, I can tell because <laughs> there's a graph here. So when I was there in the mid-90s, yeah, it was about 3.3 million. Um, you've got a very, very small place with a very, very big population density uh, and you, you've got a, 
a real interesting ethnic mix as well. It's it's predominantly Chinese, Malay, Indian, Filipino, uh, and then a bunch of expatriates like we were. And it's it, it's fascinating in many ways. In fact, uh, Singapore is one of the first places I want to go back to when I can travel internationally, partly because of my history, partly because I can get on a plane in the morning, get up there in the afternoon and be eating chili crab <laughs> by dinner and also partly because only like two hours off our time zone. So I, I, I really enjoy spending time in Singapore, but it, it just has a history that was very, very, very strict. I mean, strict to the likes of men could not have long hair, like legally. When I was there, it was always like you can't have chewing gum, you know, not allowed to have chewing gum. And it was a little bit of a, a contraband thing if you could bring chewing gum back from another country. But they've been enormously successful for a country that's basically a significant portion of reclaimed land and grown out of mangroves. Um, go to Singapore if you haven't been there before. It, it, it is an amazing place. Stuart, his friend was found guilty at age 22. Damn. Imagine having that on your record. Um, Rob says the landing immigration form in Singapore has a, a bold death to drug traffickers warning on it. Yes, so the, the, the death penalty is still a thing there as well, as is, it is in much of Southeast Asia, still the same in Indonesia, still the same in Thailand. I'm pretty sure it's still the same in China's not Southeast Asia, but same there. Uh, I don't agree with the whole death penalty thing, but I know it exists. And if I was going to go to, well, I wouldn't try traffic drugs anyway. But if I was going to go to any one of those countries, I'd be really, really conscious of that. Um, okay, Nikki's looked it up. Uh, it was July 2017 at Ordina. We had a barbecue and a hacking session for me. Oh, I remember that. I remember. That. I think that was the one where there were like 200 people or something there for a user group. And then I turned up. Uh, and I thought, wow, there's a lot of people <laughs> for a user group. Stephen, to quote John Farnham, we're all someone's daughter or all someone's son. Yeah, as it comes back to the impact of OSINT data and people possibly dying from it. Philip said, isn't it more complicated because someone dying on one side may save a number of people on the other side? That, that's a reasonable comment, but how do you know? So if you're the person looking up the OSINT data, how do you know? I mean, I, I think maybe I am of the, the level of self-awareness where I realize how much I don't know. You know. Maybe that's what's different to the kids these days. Okay, uh, on to something else. I, I want to talk about this. You know, I'll talk. I'm going to tweet it. I'm going to live tweet it now as well. I've, um, I have started recording my attempts at breach disclosure for one particular incident. Now, the reason I've done it for one particular incident is because um, someone tweeted about this publicly. Now, I'm going to go to my Twitter account and I'm going to go to the public tweet and I'm going to quote tweet this. And I'm going to say, does anyone have a security contact at, and then it's at, A-V-V-O, AVO. I can't get in touch with them via other means. Now, here's the tweet that I'm quoting. Someone here with a name I can't pronounce, which I think is deliberately that way, I don't think it's just a culture thing, says, Troy Hunt, looks like AVO has had a data breach of their user list. I'm getting those you've been hacked scam emails on my AVO-specific address. No passwords, so I guess they're hashed. 
Now, this person tweeted that, and I went, that rings a bell. Avo rings a bell. And I went back through my emails and through my backlog of data breaches that I've been putting off while I go to kids' tennis matches. And sure enough, there is an alleged Avo breach. And I'm talking about this now because I have tried to get in touch with them and it hasn't worked. And I, I think why I eventually didn't sort of pursue it at the time, and this is probably a couple of months ago I got sent it, is because, frankly, it was in the too hard basket. It looked kind of legitimate, but there wasn't a lot of data in there. I don't think I could verify it independently on the on the site. I, I couldn't do password resets or something like that for, for accounts that might exist. Uh, and then there's one other thing. So let me describe what Avo is. Avo, experienced lawyers are ready to help. And then there's all these lawyers on the page. And it looks like a like a is my lawyer hot or not sort of, I don't know, website where it's like you get to choose your lawyer or rate your lawyer. Um, and I was just like, you know, the one thing that data breaches really need more of is lawyers. So I was possibly a little bit reluctant. Anywho, this guy tweeted this the other day. And uh, I, I won't disclose the discussion we had after that. I might just leave that to later on because I want to see what he's willing for me to share. But I... I came away with enough confidence that I thought I should get in touch with Avo. And I looked at the website and I just went, where do I even begin? So I started recording my process of, of how do I figure out how to get in touch with this company? So I recorded about a 20-minute video yesterday. I don't know if I'll eventually publish it or not, of just going through this process. Now, more than a day later, after trying many, many different channels, I have not been able to get any traction. So I am now taking this public tweet that this person has tweeted and quote tweeting does anyone have a security contact at avo i can't get in touch with them via other means tweet bam that's just gone out okay so let's see what happens to that and then we'll see if there's any follow-up to this whole thing uh often when i tweet publicly people go out and a lot of people mention the organization i did just mention the twitter handle there which kind of helps uh, often people go out and they find people on LinkedIn and then they try and get in touch with them and it shouldn't be this hard. It really shouldn't be this hard. Stay tuned for that one. That might be in a subsequent weekly update somewhere. Something else, Scott's PCI post. So I did mention to Scott that I was going to do this and that he should join. Did he reply? We'll be there. All right, Scott, if you're there, <laughs> show me a sign. I thought I'd talk about this because I just, PCI is probably one of the least exciting things there is out there, but it is very relevant. And what I thought was particularly cool about Scott's blog post here, I think it's his most recent blog post. So it was very, very, very recent. I've got a homepage of scotthelm.co.uk. He's there. Clappy, clappy. Thank you, mate. Uh, he has, his recent post here is PCI DSS 4.0. It's time to get serious on Magecar. And what I thought was really interesting about this is that PCI has typically focused around uh, around organizations dealing with credit cards. If you accept credit cards, then you need to have all of these controls in place and so on and so forth, which is quite reasonable because you don't want to get your money stolen. Also, the, uh, the payment card industry really doesn't want people to get their money stolen because it impacts their members rather. So... Um, What's kind of cool about Scott Helm's blog post here, thank you, you shared the links there. Um, what, uh, 
What's kind of cool here is he's talking a lot about the other mitigating controls that we now have in the browsers to protect against MageCart style attacks. Now, for those of you not familiar with this, this is where an attacker gets their script to run on another web page somewhere. Now, this, is, uh, this has been used in things like the British Airways attack, the Ticketmaster hack. And imagine for a moment, you can run whatever JavaScript you want on someone else's payment form page. What would you do? Well, the most obvious thing, and this is what happens with the MageCard attacks, is you would scrape off every piece of data entered into the page. Obviously, people's personal information, their names, their addresses, all the rest of it. But you would also really like to scrape off the card number, the expiration date, the CVV. And what's really interesting is we've seen so many disclosures from companies where they say, uh, <laughs> we take your security seriously. However, <laughs> however, we had a little problem your credit card data got taken, it includes your CVV, and then people are like, oh my God, they're storing CVV, like this is terrible. Well, no, they weren't storing CVV, but you don't need to store CVV for CVV to be at risk because if someone scrapes it at the point of entry, then it gets exfilled out the side. Now, of course, people making purchases on these websites were still making their purchases successfully, but the problem in this case was that Yes, it'd make the purchase successfully, but also attacker now has your full card number. Now, a good example, and I'll just search for the term on Scott's blog post because he knows this better than me. Good example here is Ticketmaster and Inventor. So Inventor was a chatbot. Ticketmaster had the Inventor chatbot on their website. We've all seen chatbots before. Inventor was embedded with JavaScript. JavaScript on the Inventor side gets compromised. Supply chain then flows through onto the Ticketmaster website and their JavaScript skims off the card data. So a bunch of stuff now coming in PCI DSS 4.0. And I'm going to quote some of Scott's bit here uh, because it's kind of cool. So a, a lot of this boils down to controls on the browser side to mitigate these risks. So things like they're saying here there should be a method which is implemented to confirm that each script is authorized. So is the script allowed to run? A method is implemented to ensure the integrity of each script. Now, of course, the integrity is sub-resource integrity. So we have SRI to make sure that the script which is running on the page is precisely the script that the developers wanted to run on the page. An inventory of all scripts is maintained with written justification as to why each is necessary. Now, when I read this the other day, Scott sort of hammered on the necessary bit. It's like, what is actually necessary on a payment page, is a chatbot necessary on the payment page? I mean, what are you going to ask? It's like, how do I enter my credit card data? It's like you had the chance to ask about the product <laughs> earlier on. Uh, and also, I think Scott makes one here. It's like after you actually finish the payment, well, then you can put the scripts and things back on. But we're trying to avoid unnecessary scripts at the point of payment. So definition here, necessary for this requirement means that the entity's review of each script justifies and confirms why it is needed for the functionality of the payment paid to accept a payment transaction. Repeat that bit because it's good. Why it is needed for the functionality of the payment paid to accept a payment transaction. Do you need a chatbot on a payment page to accept a payment transaction? Now, looking over here, some of the comments, uh, so Scott is here. Uh, apparently some of his links don't work Patrick <laughs> who is this Scott Helm 
Uh, I'm going to start giving out stickers as I travel again too. More things. What else was important, Scott? Put a, put the comments there in the notes whilst I have a little read through here. Uh, Scott then, of course, talks about sub-resource integrity. Um, talks about CSP. Of course, we think CSP is a wonderful thing. What I really like about SRI and CSP is that they're free and that they're already in the browser and we're well and truly past the point of where we used to say, yes, they're in the browsers, but on these versions and those versions, are everything supports it. If you're using a browser that doesn't support it, you're really not doing very much on the web anyway. And even the browsers that didn't support it, nothing broke. You just didn't get the defense for it. I keep thinking, um, remember, Scott, when we were, we were in Vegas at like Black Hat and we we're walking around and there's all the vendor stands and there's massive vendor stands everywhere. And if you've been to somewhere like RSA, it's the same sort of thing, InfoSec EU, same sort of thing, vendor stands everywhere. And they're selling so much expensive shit. And then you get these two things that are just like totally free and they're in every browser and they work really, really well. So SRI, CSP, a um, bunch of other stuff, test security of systems and networks regularly. Uh, okay, yeah. Seems reasonable. <laughs> you probably should do that regardless of PCI. Some other comments Scott's made in here. Uh, final example given in this section, a food for thought. Violations of content security policy can be reported to the entity using the report to or report URI CSP directives, which of course is what report URI, the project Scott and I run, does, does very, very well. Changes to the CSP itself can indicate tampering. Of course, if you're in a position to tamper with the CSP, you're probably going to have a whole bunch of other problems as well. External monitoring by systems that request and analyze, analyze with a Z. This is not Scott's typing. This is an American. The received web pages, also known as synthetic user monitoring, can detect changes to JavaScript in payment pages or alert personnel. Embedding tamper-resistant tamper detection scripts in a payment page can alert and block when malicious script behavior is detected. So much of this is now about the client side and script. It's really interesting. Reverse proxies and content delivery networks can detect changes in scripts and alert personnel. So this just seems to be a much more, I think, modern interpretation of how we need to protect payment pages, which is good. It's very positive. Have a look at the comments. Anything else in here? Um, Keenan, quick beer review, Troy. Well, I, I don't know when you joined, but it's a Ben Spoke <laughs> from Canberra. Uh, the beer itself is Sprocket. It says big and hoppy. Uh, hmm? Reasonable description. Yep, it's good. Happy. Friday afternoon here, folks. <laughs> this is not a Friday morning for anyone wondering like Scott. What's in here? Scott says, yeah, that's a recent requirement around PSD2. You will be doing that a lot more. Uh, this is in response to TZH saying, also seems like credit card companies ask much more often lately for verification of online purchases in their mobile apps, etc. I get that too, where you're buying something and then they're like, we've sent you either an SMS and even though there's SIM hijacking and all the rest of it, it's like all of your secrets plus an SMS is always better than just your secrets. Or you need to authenticate to like verified by Visa or something like that. So yeah, that seems to make sense. Scott says, you have to monitor for changes on the payment page. 
Now, one of the, the things that comes to mind, uh, and this was not a mage card issue or card skimming per se, one of the things both Scott and I have written about in the past was when we had the uh, the Browse Allowed extension. Uh, so this was, well, it's not an extension. The Browse Allowed service, which was like a text-to-speech accessibility control on a lot of government web pages, uh, Scott found that Browse Allowed had been compromised and someone was injecting CoinHive into the Browse Loud script. So every web page that embedded Browse Loud for accessibility purposes, because Browse Loud had been compromised and modified, was also injecting a crypto miner into the page. So then every person that came to every website that had that there was getting themselves owned. Uh, and I just remember that one of the one of the organisations that had that problem was the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK, the ICO. Because they were embedding like BA.js and just running it no matter what. Uh, and I know that this is something that both Scott and I talk about when we run workshops. But if we go to uh, ico.gov.uk, it doesn't work. Why can't I get to the ICO? Who knows what the right ICO? If I look for ICO, I'm going to get up with icons, aren't I? Uh, ico.org.uk. That's the one. And then I view the source of that. And then I search for BA.js. So now what's really cool about that is when the ICO embeds Browse Aloud, they embed a specific version of Browse Aloud, in this case 3.1.0, and they have an integrity attribute on there. And it looks like they've taken it off the report URI integrity attribute generator because they've got both a SHA-256, a SHA-384, and a SHA-512 hash, which does seem a bit excessive <laughs> to have the three hashes, but it's all there. So this was a really good example of where this, this was a problem that was easily solved by free technology in the browser being SRI, and that's now done. Uh, of course, if anyone embeds CoinHive these days, they get my model <laughs> because I own CoinHive.com in a fortuitous set of circumstances. Now, Scott also says, they also make the distinction that CSP can restrict the loading of resources, but also where data from the page can be sent. Because, of course, with CSPs, we can determine not only where different content types are loaded from, but where different content types might be posted to from a form or just by virtue of the fact of defining where different content types can be loaded from, you can restrict the fact that that content type could be requested with other data X-filled via a query string or something like that. No threading in the comments. A lot of people miss something that I have missed the context of. Steven says, I wonder at what point we'll need be able to mark a web page as disabled browser extensions in case a user has a dodgy extension that could scrape the payment page. The problem is, is that browser extensions have like super user <laughs> for the most part. It's one of the discussions I have with, with my son where a lot of his 12-year-old mates are running browser extensions where it's like install the Terminator extension and it will like make everything look like a T800 or something like that. And then kids go, yep, install. And then there's this thing that pops up that tells you everything that the T800 browser extension can do, which is basically like read and modify any content on any web page you visit. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's why we don't do that, mate. Uh, so I suspect that browser extensions will continue to have that super user control. But mind you, even browse... Well, this is what's sort of paradoxical. Uh, I wrote another blog post about the Honey browser extension 
where, and this was another one that Scott and I looked into, uh, we kept seeing CSP violations from our own resources as well as a bunch of our customer resources where honey, I'm going to rephrase, it <laughs> sounded really bad, where uh, there were requests from honey.io from memory to embed fonts in our sites because the honey.io browser extension was trying to put fonts on uh, every web page. Only in Firefox, not in, not in the other browsers. And the, the sort of the context of the blog post was browser extension manufacturers should be allowing whatever the content type and the source is by adding it to the CSP. So in the case of Honey, because browser extensions run with like elevated privileges, they should be able to, when I say elevated privileges, they control everything that's on the web page itself, hopefully not outside the sandbox of the browser. So Honey should have been able to say, look, if we really want to embed a font from Honey.io and this website has a CSP, we should modify that CSP to allow a font source of Honey.io. Uh, and and the, the problem that we keep coming back to again is the fact that browser extensions by necessity have so much control because very often they are modifying the contents of the page. Think about uh, translation tools, for example. Scott says, you'll never be able to control the client like that. That's kind of what I just said. Uh, the browser is the user agent, acts under the control of the user, not the site. There is also replying to individuals. Similar to my last comment, if the client does something to break the page, there's very little we can do. And this is part of the problem. It's a little bit like the ad blocker argument. When people run ad blockers, the ad blocker modifies the page. I've had people in the past, many, many years ago when I had traditional shitty ads, that say, uh, your, your website's broken. So... Well, yeah, but you broke it. <laughs> like you ran something to modify the site. So the client, being the browser, can run extensions which do modify the behavior of the site. And if they exclude something that's necessary to the function of the site, stuff breaks. Yeah, I think that's what Scott's saying. Service has got to love HTML comments. This is the ICO webpage. EGAV metadata, mandatory data. This, however, is not valid HTML5. Patrick says, with regard to CoinHive pop-up from Troy's site, how many people are still telling you to leave them alone and get off their website? Let's have a look. I can't answer that question directly, but I can tell you how many people are still going to websites loading my CoinHive domain. Oh, my coin. Oh, my God. Jeez. Okay. Analytics on Cloudflare over here. In the past 30... Oh, jeez. In the past 30 days, I've had 10.78 million requests to CoinHive, which apparently, in terms of unique visitors, is 567,000 unique visitors. Ah, that sucks, man. It just doesn't get any better, does it? Top countries, USA, 158,000. Russian Federation, 77,000. Maybe we're not so sympathetic to those 77,000 people right now. Then China, then Japan, then Brazil. Brazil's always up there. I've got to figure out something else to do with that service. Scott says, I think the extension should change the CSP. really shows how powerful and thus dangerous extensions can be, which is, <laughs> which is again, sort of the paradox. It's like this is, if the extension's violating the CSP, the extension can just either entirely nuke the CSP or change the CSP to support what it wants to do, which to Scott's point shows you how much you can do if you control the extension. Fun uh, exercise. I'll, I'll do this myself. 
as well, go into your browser of choice and have a look at the extensions that you currently run. Now, if I look in Chrome, the only extensions I have running is 1Password, some Google stuff, some Office stuff, and a JSON formatter, because I look at a lot of JSON. But go through and have a look and see if there's anything that you're running that you don't absolutely positively need. And if there is, get rid of it. Because the problem is, what happens if someone else picks up that extension? Like, even if you trust whoever it is that manages that extension at the moment, if someone else then purchases that later on and they turn into something nasty, and it's happened before, what can they then do? So just principle release permissions, like get rid of anything that you don't actually need. Um, Stephen says, maybe you need to change your have I been pwned counter to a coin hive counter. Oh. Philip says, redirect CoinHive to password purgatory. What I'm conscious of is that I'm basically destroying the browsing experience for anyone going to any website that's embedding CoinHive, which, um, which does beg the question, <laughs> which websites are embedding it? Now, I do have the data because I can always pull the logs. And in fact, I did start drafting a blog post analyzing which websites are still embedding it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Let's talk about one more thing today, which is the Serbian government on Have I Been Pwned? Um, now, fortunately, we, we did not get into any discussions about Djokovic and the situation <laughs> earlier this year. The Serbian government is now the 31st government to have uh, full and free access to API-level queries for their domains, their, their domains, of course, being their gov domains. So I'm really happy to, to, to see those numbers uh, ticking along. There, there is another one I think will probably be next week. And I'm happy to see both the uptake on this. And I'm also happy to see the fact that all of the ones I'm adding are in the upper part of the green list when I wrote about setting a bar for government access. This was where I was like, there are some governments. Let's make it easy. If Russia popped up tomorrow and said, we would really like access to have I been pwned, it's like, no, I don't feel very good about that at the moment. So no, but I'm sure that they would be below the threshold that I've set on uh, on the list in that blog post. So very happy to see them coming on board. I did see a comment today where <laughs> someone replied to the tweet. What did they say? Uh, this was obnoxious. I know, like on Twitter, right? Uh if I go to my tweets and replies, I'll find it. And I won't name the person. You can look it up if you want because it's literally here on the public timeline. But um, I tweeted about this earlier on. Okay. Serbian government on board. Here we go. Oh, no. Where was the reply? All right. Someone says, because I've, I've gone, okay, I'm very happy to welcome the 31st National Government to have a been pwned. Serbia, they now have full and free API-level access to the career of their gov domains. This person said, free? Who is paying for server and database cost? And I went, me. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and the guy's like, for some reason, he felt the necessity to take a screen grab of some text which says, there is nothing free in this world. Whenever there are no costs, you are the product and you pay with your data. Anyway, the ensuing conversation basically boiled down to, screw you, man, that's crap. Uh, this is my position. I, 
it went down a little bit of, you know, like if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. So that's that's a very jaded view of the world, isn't it? Uh, people like Scott and myself and probably many of you listening here do a bunch of stuff for free either because we enjoy doing it or because it's actually a useful service for people or a combination of the both. Um, so much of what we've all done is there for free because it is useful and helpful. People do all sorts of weird shit for free. Uh, they give money away for free because they want to support a cause. They donate their time for free because they want to help make the world a better place. And with the governments, it's very much the same thing. And the, and the original position I put forward and the reason I started this in the first place is that it is really useful for governments that are often underfunded, under-resourced, overstretched, employing people at well under market rates who are just there trying to actually make a positive difference. Uh, and in my experience, and I know I speak for Scott as well when I say this, every person I've spent time with in government anywhere in the world uh, has always just been super, super top people that you would want to go and have beer with because they're nice people doing good work. Uh, and that's why, and I'm sorry that that doesn't support the screen-captured text of you being the product or something like that, but that's... Uh, Sometimes things are just done because you want to be a nice person. Scott, Novak Djokovic. <laughs> Scott says, my blog is free. Security headers is free. Report your eye has a free plan. Well, that means on the product, doesn't it? Is that how it works? Sometimes it's nice just to do something that we love. And it's nice to do something that we love. And it's helpful for other people as well. Let's leave it on that positive note, given there are some negative things that we discussed during this uh, during this update. I'm going to come and do this again next week, uh, and I'm going to try and do this on a schedule. I think uh, I will try and alternate and do this in the morning at coffee o'clock for me next time. Uh, thanks very much for watching. For those of you about to go off on your weekend like I am, uh, please enjoy it, and I'll see you uh, Easter Friday. We'll be next Friday. See you, folks. <laughs>